Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's time for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. And no, there's no Mr Kevin Healy, but he will be back next week. Today, part two of an interview with Chance Warland, who's been around the world lately and he's talking today about life in South Korea. French political system with historian and author Brian McKinlay. Issues affecting Palestine with activist Kim Bullimore. The doomsday clock, it's moved to 2 minutes 30 to midnight. What does all that mean? I'll be speaking with the co-president of the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War and also his associate professor at the Nossel Institute for Global Health at the University of Melbourne. But first, let's hear what Maggie Beavis has got to say. And today it's our first segment for 2017 for the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. And I'm speaking with the President, Dr. Margie Beavis. So, Margie, perhaps introduce your organisation for people who might not know and who the members are and exactly what you do. Well, Happy New Year to you and to all your beloved listeners. MAPW, the Medical Association for Prevention of War, is actually a group of health professionals, doctors, nurses, physios, people in the health professions, who are really concerned about war because it is a major, if you like, epidemic that breaks out in places. It causes terrible death and disability in the areas where conflict arises. And as well as that, it really impoverishes the countries at home. I mean, you only have to look at all the money that goes into weaponry that could be going into health and education and other really, you know, mental health, good social services. So we're really about education and information and we also go and meet with politicians and write opinion pieces and letters and talk on the radio. (laughs) And also, for instance, we've put in submissions, we're about to put in a submission on the foreign policy white paper that's due at the end of February and and things like that. We'll be arguing that um, the government should not be cutting money for diplomacy, it should not be cutting money for foreign aid and it should not be radically ramping up the defence budget because the defence budget is markedly increasing and um, will by 2020 become 2% of the Australian GDP, which is a huge increase. Everything else is going through austerity, whereas defence is going through boom times. And not only is that a problem in terms of all the other services we don't have money for, but it's also a problem in the region because you may start a regional arms race if we're going to be so extravagant in how we're funding our defence measures. And do you work with similar groups in other countries? Yes, we are in fact the Australian branch of a group called the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War. People may remember back in the early 80s, Gorbachev and Reagan got together and negotiated quite a big reduction in the nuclear weapons um, that they had. And this came about because they had each had a cardiologist, a heart specialist, and the heart specialist met at the conference and got talking and then decided they would talk with their respective patients about what a, what a huge human disaster nuclear weapons are and how catastrophic any use of nuclear weapons is and really that the only way to deal with them is to get rid of them. So that was the International Physicians for Prevention Nuclear War. And in fact, that group, of which we are proudly part, got the Nobel Prize in 1985 for their work, success in that particular 
nuclear part of a nuclear weapons system. Well, on to... 2017, at the end of 2016, there was a, a very significant vote at the UN, the UN Security Council, voting on the ban or a proposal ban on nuclear weapons. Others on this program have talked about it, but I'll ask you if you could just tell us, we've had the vote, what's next? What's next is there will be probably happening very soon an uh, organisational meeting where they'll work out the nuts and bolts of what's happening. But the real meetings are going to happen in March and then in June, July in New York, where countries are going to get together, along with non-government organisations as observers, and nut out what the actual wording of this treaty should be. And that's really important. We're really hoping that the Australian government will join these negotiations. They haven't committed one way or the other. The Australian government's been part of negotiations in landmines, cluster munitions, biological weapons, chemical weapons, in the bans for these agents, which have been very successful. And it would be a real shame if they didn't join the negotiations in New York, as I said, in March and in June, July. And we are really hoping that they will, because we think if they don't, it really brings into question their commitment to United Nations processes and also their commitment to the Non-Proliferation Treaty, because really this is fits neatly in the, what the Non-Proliferation Treaty, of which Australia is a signatory. And... Uh, for Australia not to participate would be a real blow for the future of restricting nuclear weapons. I mean, nobody's thinking that this treaty will solve all the problems. What will happen after the treaty is that the weapons will then be stigmatised, which means a lot of money will be taken out of that industry. So, for instance, we have Westpac, CBA, Macquarie Bank, even our own future fund shamefully investing in companies that make nuclear weapons. So we, they are all profiting out of nuclear weapons manufacture and what this ban will do is take a lot of money out of nuclear weapons it'll take about a decade I think of verification and then gradual removal of nuclear weapons but I think this this is a, a historic moment and, and brings us closer to nuclear weapons disarmament than we've been for decades Even the New Zealand voted for it why can't we? Because we are in the pocket of the Americans I mean, <laughs> what's really sad is, is that Australia has adopted the America first foreign policy that Trump is so strong on and it would be really wonderful if we could emulate the New Zealanders and have an independent foreign policy in Australia's interest. Well, I think Australia's going to have a bit of a problem if they try to emulate Trump on many things and particularly on the nuclear issue because, well, in a speech a few weeks ago, he was sort of encouraging other countries that they might like to acquire nuclear weapons. He's incredibly inconsistent on this. He, he said things from sort of black to white as if all are true. I mean, he said that nuclear weapons are the biggest threat, much bigger than climate change. Nuclear weapons proliferation is a terrible thing. He said, if we have them, why can't we use them? Um, he talked about how scary it was getting the nuclear football, you know, the codes that the president has. He's all over the shop. I mean, he has, as you said, encouraged Japan, South Korea, Saudi Arabia even to consider nuclear weapons. So he's sort of flip-flopping all over the place with nuclear weapons, which is really very concerning given what a, what a terrible threat they are both. Yeah, both to any nations that would be involved in using them, but also globally, the, the nuclear winter that may follow could bring a very terrible famine. And of course, that flip-flopping by him is all the more reason why we should con reconsider the ANZUS alliance. And that's debates coming now, not from below, like people like us, but recent posts by former Prime Ministers Fraser and the other one, Keating. Yes, yes. No, Paul Keating's come out very strongly about saying Australia needs to reconsider the Answers Alliance. And also the Answers Alliance, people say that 
that provides us with protection. When in fact, when you read the print in the Answers Alliance, it basically says that they will consult with us. They won't necessarily come and rescue us from any attack. But if there's an attack in the region, they will consult with us. Consultation is a long way from defence. So I think the Answers Treaty, also the protections that people think are contained in the Answers Treaty, are somewhat overstated. What's really concerning is how enmeshed we are with the United States military. I mean, not only do we have multiple intelligence bases, particularly Pine Gap, but there's multiple other ones. We also have the um, Marines base in Darwin, which is likely, pressure is likely to be put on to expand that. And also we have, in the Pacific chain of command for the United States, there is an Australian general who's number two in that command, and there's about 40 military personnel who are enmeshed in that command. So it's extremely difficult to Australia if, if America takes an aggressive stance in the Pacific, for instance, in the South China Sea, given that we have senior defence personnel in their chain of command, it's going to be extremely difficult for Australia to do anything other than part toe the American line. And, of course, the monetary cost as well. Yes. Well, I think Trump is uh, highly likely to expect Australia to take more bases or more Marines. I think expansion of... The bases that encircle China is highly likely. And it's very interesting if, if listeners are interested to sort of Google the, the US bases near China. You can see there's sort of a circle of bases that just go around China, of which we are the sort of bottom part of the curve. But it's no wonder that the Chinese are feeling a little got at when you look at where all the, new, um, the American bases are positioned. And then you travel west on the other side of Russia and you find that there's um, an encirclement going on against that country as well. Yes, NATO, yes, exactly, exactly. And as I, I think I've mentioned previously, you know, one of the most terrifying things about nuclear weapons is that there's 50 nuclear weapons around 100 kilometres from the Syrian border that you know, NATO's got in Turkey. So having all these nuclear weapons positioned very close to those regions is, is of some concern. In the same sense... As the alliance debate, we've got the opposition to the F-35 joint strike fighters, and that's coming from the right too, including yes. Trump. And you've got a person like Robert Gottliebson, who's a far right, I would say, writer. Yes, the cost overruns are extraordinary. I mean, between 2006 and 2011, this program had a $13.5 billion cost overrun. By 2014, it's $16.3 billion over budget and seven years behind schedule. These planes, I mean, one-third of the material is... The engine, one-third is a plane, but one-third of these planes is their computers. And you really wonder if by the time they've actually delivered, will they still be state-of-the-art? And there's lots of concerns that they can be outmaneuvered by older planes already. And for us to be spending such a huge amount of money on these planes is extraordinary. And, in fact, Christopher Pine came out recently, even, even though Trump has questioned the cost losses from this, this build by Lockheed Martin, Christopher Pine came out and dutifully trotted out that Australia was going to stay on track and that we were going to get our deliveries as scheduled. So I think the full, full production sets in by 2019, provided there are no further time overruns. But this has been a very a very troubled program and yes this plane has got many many problems and it is very concerning that we're spending so much money on a plane that already looks reasonably dodgy. Are there other countries that have got orders as well? 
Yes, there's a lot of countries who've lined up, a lot of American allies who've lined up, but um, both Japan and Canada have looked at this and said Japan's thinking about halting its whether it'll take it or not, and Canada, in the run up to the election, Trudeau said that he would cancel the order. He did cancel the order, and now it's backtracked to not yet committed to the order. But um, it's, it is concerning when both Japan and Canada are warning that this is, this is a problem. The other thing that's concerning is that the deliveries will continue up to 2037. So if you can imagine 20 years from now, they're still going to be delivering the same plane. And they're saying that the lifespan of this plane will be till 2070. Well, I mean, you just have to look at the drone technology now and think about will this be the last manned aircraft? I mean, this is this is an aircraft, as I said, that's well behind when it was supposed to be delivered. And you do wonder with, by the time it actually is delivered whether it'll be obsolete. And, of course, it's all about killing people. Oh, yes. And also being part of a group of planes that will fit in with the American fleet. So that, in turn, is concerning. There are defence commentators in Australia, I can't remember the name of the person who said it, but who said... A retired defence person said that, in fact, this plane was not well-suited to Australia's needs. It was well-suited to being part of an alliance going into another country, but it wasn't as well-suited to defending Australia. Successive governments, you know, they dig their heels in, though, don't they? Absolutely. I think the, the sway of the American foreign policy is very strong. What's the connection between all of this and the Avalon Air Show? Oh, the Avalon Air Show is now, instead of being, I mean, it's advertised as a great opportunity for families to get together and see new aviation, and, and that's true. But it's now become, behind the Avalon Air Show is a second event, which is basically an arms trade fair, where people like Lockheed Martin, who are running the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter program, and many other huge weapons manufacturers are now selling their wares into the Pacific and the people in the air show are selling the Pacific as an as a opportunity for, you know, this, this, this is an area that hasn't been developed. Well, the Pacific having relatively few weapons is a wonderful thing. I mean, you only have to look at most of the Pacific Island nations do not have, have had good guns control and good weapons control and that's been in part due to the, the small arms treaty that came in a few years ago. But for instance, you contrast that with Papua New Guinea, where they didn't have small weapons control, where there are an enormous number of guns, and it's one of the unsafest places on the planet in terms of there are gangs that are very well armed. And for the Avalon air show to suddenly morph into an arms trade fair, which is a very corrupt industry, which is trying to sell weaponry into the Pacific and is, is supported and subsidised by the Commonwealth and state governments, is a real disappointment. And in fact, if... if your listeners are interested, we have a petition on community run, which is actually trying to stop the Avalon arm trade. If they, if they want to sign on, have a look at stop the arms trade at Avalon Air Show, there's a petition, and, and we would love people to sign on to that because there really shouldn't be an arms trade at Avalon Air Show. It should just be a family air show, and we shouldn't be kowtowing to this incredibly corrupt and dangerous industry. When's it on? The air show is on the beginning of March. The uh, trade fairs, I think, sits either side of that, so from the end of February to the beginning of March. So there's likely to be demonstrations there? I'm not sure. We're certainly thinking about what our options are. I don't know if there'll be other groups there. We're, yeah, at the moment, we're basically organising to try and get um, exposure in the media so people understand that it's happening. Most people don't even know that it's happening. 
No, most people think it's a, a nice air show, you know. Yes, that's right. That's how it's publicised. That always absolutely. has been publicised. Yes, absolutely. A family event. Yes. And what, well, what's a bit depressing even about the family event? We're supposed to thrill to the power and the dom. I mean, it's all about domination and, and it, it's no longer about sort of aerial skill. It's now talking about domination and the, the promotion is actually taking on a slightly sinister quality as well, even for the air show, but that's another story. And if people want like to find out more about your information, you've got a web page? Our website is www.mapw.org.au. And you're also looking for people to join? And Yes, yes, certainly. We have associate members for people who are not health professionals. And yes, the more members we have, the stronger our voice is um, when we go and talk to people. So yes, if people would like to join, that would be fantastic. Okay, Margie, thanks for talking. Oh, thank you so much, Jan. It's really great. And that is Dr. Margie Beavis from MAPW, and that webpage again is www.mapw.org.au. And you are listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR, where the time is 4.17, and you could be listening on 3cr.org.au on your computer or digital 3CR or on the old-fashioned way, 8.55am on your AM dial. Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make, but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR. And now the second of three-part series of interviews with Chance Warland. He's just returned after a less than successful time as a peace volunteer in Colombia. Where'd you go from there? So I spent a good amount of time in the United States getting healthy again. And then after that, I went, uh, went to South Korea. Why? South Korea has a lot of uh, English media. And uh, I didn't want to live in the States um, for a couple different reasons um, at that time. Number one, because I felt really betrayed by my country, um, really betrayed by the Peace Corps, and I wanted to kind of forget it. Did you know anyone there? Uh, in South Korea? Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. I'd spent some time in South Korea be- before uh, I went back three years ago. I uh, had done some work for a radio station, a couple of radio stations, if I remember correctly. And, you know, just uh, I really enjoy the country. South Korea really feels like my, my second home. And I definitely feel more comfortable in South Korea currently than I do back in the United States. I've been back a few times. And it just feels so strange to be back in the U.S. where I feel very comfortable. Talk about media in South Korea, maybe censorship, maybe social media. Where does that all stand? South Korea is like one of the most wired places in the world. Um, I've done reports, um, I forget the exact way they measured this, but according to the, the one that I was using, South Korea has had the fastest internet for a very long time, you know, and it's, even if it's not the fastest, just for the sake of argument, it's very good, it's very plentiful, it's, it's, it's a fantastic place to be if you like using the internet, and everything's so wired, so everyone's always constantly posting photos on social media and messaging, there's an app called Kakao Talk that it's, um, I guess it's like WhatsApp in the US, like everyone has it, but it's been like this in Korea for years, where WhatsApp is more of a kind of a recent thing. Kakao Talk, you know, because there's 50 million people in the country, and um, it's the size of a US state. And so it's really easy for something to catch on with everyone. In that aspect, it's great. Working in the media, it was it was a little disappointing. I was censored constantly. I'm working for a Korean broadcaster, told I couldn't cover certain topics or I needed to cover them a certain way. 
I had reports that were approved, and once I was done with all the interviews and everything, and I submitted the the file, they just didn't air them. Did they tell you why? Um, yeah, sometimes you know I, I lucked out. Some of the people that I worked with were pretty upfront, and they just said, you know, I gave you this assignment, but once I told my higher ups about it, they just were not crazy about it. So maybe this is my fault, and I apologize. What were some of the things that they didn't like? Oh, well, the one that I just mentioned was funny. Um, uh, Another Korean broadcaster, not the one that I worked for, they had some sort of like public service announcement campaign where it was like Koreans needed to be more considerate. Like I think maybe there had been a couple big stories about like someone got hurt and like no one around them helped or maybe just um, like it's very stereotypical to get pushed on the subway, you know, things like that. And so this public broadcaster or maybe not public, but this major broadcaster in Korea had just been like, hey, you know, be more considerate. The more you know, you know, and then there's some background music. So I did a report on that. But then it was just like I submitted the report and uh, my producer said, oh, well, you know, the, the people here at the radio station, because it's a story about another broadcaster, we don't want to air it. And so that's kind of fair because in the U.S., especially in lower markets, people will be a little concerned about talking about their competitors. So at that point, I was like, OK, this was definitely not my fault, but you're very open with me about this. Like, OK, let's just call it a day. But then they didn't want to pay me for the work that I did. And I said, well, you have to pay me. And so I had to fight them for a couple of weeks and eventually they did. But, you know, other things. What about reporting on North Korea? Where does that fit in in South Korea? Sure. Well, North Korea is covered all the time. It even gets to the point that um, sometimes when I would submit proposals for reports on North Korea, the producer at the time would just say no, not because they were inappropriate for what they were looking for, but because we've talked about North Korea like the last four days. Like let's have a non-North Korean story for a while, which once again, fair enough. I understand where they're coming from for that. But also with North Korea, you know, if someone you talk to says something that could be perceived as like not 100 percent condemning North Korea, like maybe thinking that like, OK, well – could, could someone think that this person is sympathetic to North Korea, something like that? And, and not saying that they would be, but maybe that would be a perception that could come out. When I would deal with North Korea, sometimes it was very clear what what the expectations were. Um, but that actually, for me, was not the real moment of censorship. For me, it was things that made Korea look bad, made the government look bad, either culturally or with um, elected officials or relationships with other countries, things like that. Um, that was pretty standard to to have to worry or not worry because you know I worked there I wasn't too worried about it but to just be very aware of what I was doing and make sure that they got what they were looking for. So if people want to be in any way supportive of reintegration or whatever, that's the official standpoint of the Korean government is that we will reun- they have an entire ministry of like reunification okay. and that's their job. Problem was that North Korea is a horrible country. I'm not I'm not saying it's great. I mean like they're really when you look at totalitarian dictatorships and government, like they're really at the top of the game around the world. I mean, they've survived this entire time. They're they're quite successful in their totalitarian dictatorship, but there's more to the story. For instance, after the Korean War, North Koreans were much better off in a lot of ways. Um, North Korea was doing much better than South Korea. It wasn't until some decades later when South Korea really pulled ahead and then it's not even a contest now, the, you know, the lifestyles between the two. There were a lot of atrocities committed during the Korean War by South Korean troops, a lot of atrocities by North Korean troops as well. What about the U.S. troops? I'm sure, but um, that's not something that I would focus on. I've read about that, but my reports would always be usually from a South Korean or just a Korean perspective. But it's interesting because I took a class one time at a university in South Korea, and um, there was this incident where a professor was talking 
and he said that at one point there was there was um, some new there was some information that that got out somehow about maybe some atrocities that had been committed by American troops during the Korean War. And the way he told the story was that when that happened, the American government basically told the South Korean government that we have quite a lot of information that we've never released about the South Korean atrocities. So maybe we can move on from this topic or perhaps we can extend this shame onto the South Korean government as well. And I think from what I remember of of that discussion was that worked. And then people stopped talking about the atrocities in that specific instance of the American troops. And once again, this is kind of fogging my memory, but that's that's kind of what I generally remember. And to talk about that again, this is, I guess, what I mean by censorship is that this professor was so knowledgeable. He was amazing. He was a Korean American, so like fully bilingual in English and Korean. And you know, he told us this, but just so that we would understand, not that he was like, you know, tooting his own horn, but he was like one of the few people in the world who was really knowledgeable on a lot of the topics we were talking about in a Korean history and culture class. But he was afraid of losing his job. Hmm. He would tell us things that like, don't tell people I told you this, which I really appreciate. But at the time, I was just getting ready to like pull out my hair. I'm like, this is a college. Like, no one's debating the facts. It's just the facts that you, the fact that you bring up said facts, like you feel that your job could be in jeopardy. That's what it's like working in media sometimes. I'm sure it's no different here in certain aspects. Once again, I've only been here in Melbourne for a few months, but this doesn't feel like the same thing. I mean, 3CR exists. Yeah, yeah, but we're not the norm. Sure, sure, but you exist. Yes. This type of thing, in my experience, does not exist in South Korea. And and a lot lot of the time, with a few exceptions in the United States, it doesn't exist either. Yeah, you know, I'm, every country has its problem, but there are some really obvious problems that people either don't know about or they just don't focus on them as much as I think they should. Such as? Censorship in everything in life. And um, above that, I mean, gender equality is really, really a huge issue in South Korea. I've done a lot of reporting on it. It's it's very unfortunate, the type of, um, I guess, I, to be frank, the type of things that women have to deal with, not to mention um, LGBTI community. Um, I've covered the the Gay Pride Fest. I think is it called Soul Fest. I can't remember, but I, I went to that a couple of years, and just the, the stuff that people have to put up with is is rather unfortunate. But of course, as an American, you know, I'm I'm not going to pretend that similar things don't exist in my own country or here in Australia as well. But it's just it's it's different in South Korea. What about for workers in South Korea? What rights do they have? It's interesting. I think that there are a lot of things to point out on both sides of this issue. Minimum wage in South Korea is ridiculously low. It's like $5. It's like 5,000 won, something like that. So about like five US dollars. I can't remember exactly. And it's, it's been that way for quite a long time. People don't make a lot of money. And even if you have like what could be, be perceived as a good job, I didn't make a lot of money. My girlfriend, certainly, even though she has a master's degree and works in a very professional field, often I'm surprised at how much she has made or how much her friends make, things like that. But at the same time, South Koreans have a very strong... Um, and even back into when it was all one country before it was taken over by Japan, and even during that time, they have a very strong history of standing up for their rights, just like we saw when Park and was impeached, when they had these million-plus person demonstrations. I mean, they have been having demonstrations for decades, for generations. It's a very Korean thing, which is great. So while I think that they are taken advantage of in some ways where they get very low wages and people are often injured in the workforce or they get cancer and then they're denied benefits – because of legal loopholes, things like that, they're not just pushed over and accepted. They're always fighting for more. And there are some ways that you can kind of get around um, some of these hurdles. So for instance, a very low minimum wage, most Koreans will live at home until they're married. 
So if you're making $5 an hour but you don't have to pay rent and your parents are feeding you, that's doable for a, a lot of people. We're like in the US, you know, it's changed a bit because the economy was so bad for so long, but you know, when I was 18, if I didn't move out from my house, I just would have felt like a loser. I would have felt like a loser if I didn't go to college, but if I had not gone to college and just stayed at home, I would have been like, "Wow, I am a loser." But in Korea, that's so normal even if you go to school to live at home for for so long. So there are ways to deal with these barriers that um, are put in your um, in your you know journey towards becoming an adult when it comes to the workforce. High rise living, lots of giant apartment buildings that unfortunately are not very good looking. They all look the same, but if you go outside of the big cities, they're less common. So people that live in smaller cities will sometimes live in homes, and even in in Seoul, I have I have some Korean friends that live in houses, and some foreigner friends that rent apartments in a house that's been cut up. You know, so you don't have to live in a giant high rise, but it's certainly not uncommon to do so. And there is a fair agricultural area. Koreans do a lot of farming. Um, it just like in the U.S., it's sort of a generational thing that's dying, so less people are doing it, and everyone wants to move to the big cities. Does that mean that migrant workers are coming in to do the agricultural work? Uh, yes and no. So South Korea has quite a few. So basically, like twenty twenty five million people live in the Seoul metropolitan area, which is about half the country. But there is no like significantly comparable area. So you have Seoul, and then once you go down to the second city, Busan, like it's a dramatic drop in population. So there are a lot of people that live rurally. So there are definitely Koreans who still do this type of work. But yeah, there are lots of um, yeah they call it migrant labor as opposed to like. Um, immigration or something like that, maybe which would be more of a concept in the West. Um, so they're always referring to to migrant labor. And then, you know, I've done some reports. Hor- Exploited? Horrible things um, were like someone, I think maybe someone from Thailand, I can't remember, but like this worker died. The husband and wife or just the guy that was running the small business, he like disposed of his body. And then they're like, oh, he just disappeared. But then the police figured out what was going on. So he ended up just taking his own life, which is unfortunately kind of common in South Korea to save face, you just kind of kill yourself. But it also happens to Koreans. You know, my, my friend who's a Korean journalist, he worked with a reporting team from an, another country, I can't remember where. They went to an island in South Korea where a mentally challenged, disabled, uh, someone with um, some learning dis- disabilities challenges, basically was a slave at like a salt mining facility. And then he somehow got out and then he got back to his family and he's like, I, I've been a slave for years. Like they were beating me and stuff like that. And they made it like a small news documentary about this. So there are a lot of unfortunate things that um, are going on in South Korea on that end. But of course, I, I make no claim that this doesn't happen in other areas of the world as well. Absolutely. What about the political situation with the partial impeachment of the president? That's good. You got that right. Partial impeachment. So just like Bill Clinton, there's a process and she's in the middle of that right now. I can't imagine that the constitutional court would not fully impeach her. Was that unexpected or were people clamoring for that for quite a while? This was unexpected a year ago. But um, literally like a few days after I left South Korea, I've been in Melbourne about two months, news broke of this scandal where Park and hae um, basically has had this confidant friend who is the daughter of sort of like a religious cult leader who was friends with Park and hees father who was a former dictator of South Korea. So already interesting in this story, forget everything else I mentioned, the current president is the daughter of a former dictator. 
who, whether or not you're a fan of his or not, like did some very questionable things. And so that was the situation that you're in. And then they found out that she'd had this relationship with this woman where this woman was involved sort of embezzling money. Once again, none of this has really been proven, but this is the general idea is that she was embezzling money from very large corporations to receive favors from the government. And like her daughter, like a very large company, it may have been Samsung. I don't remember. They like bought her daughter a horse. And she like went to a really nice high school and then apparently didn't do anything, got got her diploma. She went to the top women's school, which is one of the top schools for any person in, in Korea and apparently didn't go to class. And so all these favors and then this woman was um, like reading the president's speeches and like editing them. And so she was like an advisor as well. But she had no no reason to be doing that. She was just a friend. They've now arrested her. They just found the daughter who got the horse. She was hiding in Denmark, if I remember correctly. Um, they just found her, and they're waiting to extradite her to South Korea. And the president has been impeached by um, the representatives that were elected to office, but the constitutional court has to approve that, and that could take months. So they were having these you know, 500,000, million, million-plus um, protests every Saturday in Seoul, and they're still having them, even though she has been partially impeached. Because I think people probably have gotten really into the the spirit of just going out there and doing that. But also people are still wanting to make sure that they continue on with this. Obviously less people than before when she was actually impeached um, by the legislature. But it's still going on and it's cold. And and, and then the the thing that I haven't mentioned also, you may have heard the Saywell Ferry that happened about – gosh, it's it's now the 1,000-day anniversary just happened like this week. So about 300 uh, middle school kids drowned on a ship, and President Park had a lot of questions that she needed to answer about what happened that day and the decisions that she made. And they said that, you know, where were you for like seven hours? There was no record, and there's a lot of weird conspiracy theories. But now that all this stuff with her confidant has emerged, this has been put back into the spotlight, and a lot of this stuff was really – just swept under the rug, unfortunately, even though you have these families of like these 300 kids and they've been wanting justice for the last uh, couple of years. And I, I've, I've spoken with some of them. I've done a lot of reporting on that. So it's just so much going on in South Korea right now. It's really unfortunate. But it is, it is good that it looks like they are going in what would be perceived as the correct direction to try to hold people change. accountable. Yeah. Yeah. So it's positive. Yeah. But also I, I have some friends that have written some things recently that like Korean politicians are, are just so notoriously corrupt. It's just it's just the way things are in South Korea. I don't think I'm going out of line when I say that. That's pretty well reported, right? And so you remove Pak and Hay, it's not going to change that. Just like if Donald Trump, who unfortunately will be my president in just a matter of days, if, if he was all of a sudden removed and they just installed Hillary Clinton, it's not like Trump supporters wouldn't be there. It's not like the Republican Party still wouldn't be there. So a similar thing in South Korea. And that's Chance Warland. And next week we'll have the final part of his talk about life both in the US and in the other countries where he's lived. And that was him talking about life in South Korea. And it's 34 minutes past four o'clock. This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can change. Coming up next, historian and author Brian McKinlay. Today I'm going to look at the forthcoming French elections and the events leading up to them, which are now underway in France. 
and I'll also look at the French political system for those who are not as familiar with it. But it's pretty impossible these days to talk about politics and world affairs without talking about that man Trump. He seems to dominate the media, as one would expect of a president of the United States. He seems to be worse than anybody, even his friends, thought might be the case. And he also does seem to have uh, a lack, I think is the word, of the most basic understanding of how world affairs operate. If you look back at Trump's background, he is nothing more than a wealthy real estate agent. And indeed, many real estate agents are decent, hardworking people. But he was a property speculator three or four times, bankrupt for various reasons. So he's not all that brilliant. And indeed, many people even dispute his uh, stories of his wealth, which is probably why he has not, uh, as most candidates and presidents have, come forward with his tax records. Now, all this shows what we already know, that he's a bully and a liar and a womaniser of of a kind. That, of course, has triggered a great march last week by women in the United States. And this is an interesting moment because all of these events seem to be coming very quickly in his presidency. Now, most presidents have a bit of a honeymoon, not Trump. The opposition has been on the streets from day one or day two. Day one, I think. Now he faces all sorts of opponents who will use the courts and everything else. People inside the Republican Party, like John McCain, who's basically a decent man, a right-winger, of course. But nevertheless, all of this suggests that Trump's ignorance, his bullying... His stupidity, I think, is probably a a justifiable word, are unique in American presidents. Now, we've seen in my lifetime, and in the lifetime of many here, I can remember men like Nixon, who turned out to be a crook, of course, but Nixon, nevertheless, was a shrewd, clever, calculating politician who knew a great deal about the world, which led him to his remarkable rapprochement uh, and understanding with China under Mao. We can all remember Nixon opening the one China policy and going to Beijing. All very dramatic stuff. And we've had presidents like Jimmy Carter, a decent, hard-working supporter of civil liberties, and by the way, of the Palestinians. Uh, We've seen people like Kennedy, of course, tragically and famously, Uh, He and his beautiful wife changed the White House. We saw that moment, what people call the Camelot moment. And by the way, if you're looking at films and going to one shortly, I'd suggest, as we did a few days ago, you go to see the film called Jackie, which looks at the week after the assassination of her husband through the eyes of Jacqueline Kennedy. Very interesting, well-done film. But I'm not here today to talk about films. I'm talking about Trump because last week he had an an unexpected visitor from Paris. In fact, the visitor was uh, Marie Le Pen, the leader of the right-wing party, one might say neo-fascist party in France, who made a, she hoped, secret and very quiet visit to New York to meet Trump a few days before his inauguration. Now, actually... Walls have ears, and it didn't work. Uh, 
because she was spotted there. And, of course, in France, that opened up an enormous debate. She is not a member of parliament. She leads a right-wing party, which does hold seats at various levels in France, a party founded by her pro-Vichy, pro-Nazi father, Jean-Marie Le Pen, a nasty piece of work as you could find. Now, Marie Le Pen made a quiet visit to New York to see Trump. And it says something of Trump's ignorance of how the political world works, that she met him and they had a meeting, and they would have got on famously, I'm sure. But she's not the president of France or the prime minister or the leader of the opposition party. It would be as if Pauline Hanson took herself off to Washington and had a meeting with uh, Trump when neither of our political leaders or any of our political leaders here of the three main parties were in any way involved. Now, Marie Le Pen is an interesting figure, and I'm going to move from looking at this event, interesting though it is, to looking at the French elections, which are coming up later this year. Now, she is the fairly attractive candidate in every sense of the word for the National Front. Now, the National Front goes back a long way in France to the post-war years when her father, Jean-Marie Le Pen, founded it as a far-right party with very prominent fascist leanings. It's racist, it's anti-left, it's um, a nationalist party. Among other things, it's opposed to France having been part of the European community and indeed having the euro currency. The European community has attracted, in recent months, the attacks of right-wingers everywhere in Europe. And it's funny because basically the European community is a fairly conservative capitalist organisation of Europe's economy and its political structures. There's a European Parliament. And all this grew out of post-World War II events in Europe in which many leaders of nations, and some of them conservatives, men like General de Gaulle, who had lived through two great world wars, both of which we should remember originated in Europe and were led by the conflict of European countries, at which Germany, of course, was a centre, but not the only country involved, as you know. The European community has grown from a very modest common market to an, an all-embracing event with something like 28 sovereign states. But the right wing in Europe, the far right, don't like it at all. And, of course, we saw a victory for these people under UKIP in Britain with the carrying of the referendum on Brexit. An extraordinary event, too. So why did Marie Le Pen go to New York to see Trump? And why did he see her secretly? Well, of course, it may be that he hopes... And he wouldn't know one thing from another about French politics. But people have suggested that she might be a winner. Now, to understand French politics today, you really need to go back and look at French life since the 1930s, in a funny way. In 1936, there was a fundamental event in France when a coalition of left-wing parties, including both the Socialist and Communist parties, fearful of the rise of fascism, and by 1936, Hitler and Mussolini were in power, 
and there was a civil war about to start in Spain. So everywhere around, the French left saw these fascist parties rising to power, and in the case of Germany and Italy and Spain, murdering tens of thousands of political activists on the left. So in France, uh, it led to the formation for the elections of 36 of what was called the Popular Front. And led by a socialist, Bloom, they won the elections handsomely and came to power with both a reformist agenda, a 40-hour week for workers, workers' compensation, votes for women, a whole lot of pretty modest reforms, but nevertheless the socialist alliance was in power. The communists, by the way, weren't in the government. They supported it from the crossbenchers. But the socialists, radicals, liberals made up the Bloom government. Bloom, by the way, was a Jew, the first Jewish president, uh, prime minister of France. That didn't prevent the right, who were by now ferociously anti-Semitic, taking their lead from Hitler's Germany, of course, from opposing him on that ground alone. And uh, Le Pen, there was a saying among the right wing in France, better Hitler than Le Pen. And of course, that was what they were going to get in the next four years. Because when World War II came in the second year of the war, in what was the first full year of war, the Nazis attacked uh, Belgium, Holland, Luxembourg and France in May. And in a spectacular series of military victories, they brought the French army to defeat in a month. Now, in the First World War, the French had held out for four years. But in 1940, France collapsed, partly because a section of the right wing in France had no stomach for a battle with Hitler. And those who had said, better Hitler than Bloom, got what they wanted. And by June 1940, France was under Nazi occupation. Now, the Nazis were very clever. Hitler divided France into two areas. He occupied what was called occupied France, including Paris and all the coast, the Atlantic, and central France. The southern France, the Riviera, parts of southern France, was now ruled by what was called the Vichy government. This was a Nazi collaborating government of French men who were prepared to work with the Nazi occupation. And the Vichy leaders, led by a man called Laval, and an old general called Pétain, set up a pro-Nazi government ruling from a town, a very beautiful spa resort, I might say, called Vichy. Vichy has a place in history which it hardly deserves. But the regime set itself up there. It couldn't operate from Paris, which was under Nazi occupation. And so from 1940 onwards, there was effectively a fascist government in the southern half of France. But it worked with the Nazis at every level. Bloom, by the way, was arrested. He'd been prime minister, unlike some French leaders who fled to Britain, like de Gaulle, where he formed what was called the Free French. Bloom was taken prisoner. But oddly enough, he survived the war in a Nazi camp and lived on post-war. De Gaulle fled, and de Gaulle was a conservative and a general, but he didn't like what had happened in France and formed the Free French and ran a government in exile with the blessing of the British government from London. Post-war was to become the greatest of French figures. Now, though he was right-wing, de Gaulle was 
as these actions show, was bitterly anti-Nazi and anti-fascist. And he, uh, after liberation in 1944, put the Vichy leaders on trial for treason. And Laval, the prime minister of the Vichy regime, was executed by firing squad. And Patan, who had been a, a general in the First World War and something of a war hero, but had been president of the Vichy regime, was sent to jail for life in an island off the Atlantic coast, where he stayed until he died in the 1960s. A very old man, by the way. These events meant that by the end of the war, there was a substantial group of men and women in France. Some of them fled, of course, to places like Argentina. But they were traitors and had worked with the Nazi occupiers. And those who weren't executed or jailed, and de Gaulle saw to that, for instance, a famous novelist of the 30, a man called Jean Brassilac, was a fascist, and he supported the Nazis in his writings during the occupation. And he was tried, found guilty, and eventually executed. Uh, in the middle of a controversy when people say, well, you can execute politicians and generals, but can you execute writers? Well, de Gaulle did, and Brasillac was executed. So de Gaulle's post-war record in France was absolutely free of any suggestion of fascist leanings. And he became the leader of the conservative parties in post-war France. They were in a great collapse after the war, as everywhere in Europe, right-wing parties were for a while, and left-wing parties uh, swept to power. In fact, in the first French elections in 1945, the Communist Party of France, which had had a very honourable and central role in the resistance, the Communist Party emerged as the largest party in the French Parliament, with over 100 seats. The Socialists became very close to that. And so de Gaulle set up a national government of communist socialists himself as president, and the right-wing parties, some of them, in the government. And France had a left-wing government of this kind for some years after the war. When the Cold War came, the French Communist Party left the government... Uh, that meant that the French Communist Party became the official opposition and remained so right down to fairly recent times and always could get 20 or 25% of the national vote, much stronger than the socialists could get. But the communists couldn't, afford, uh, couldn't achieve much as they were permanently in opposition, although they won substantial seats in municipal councils and many French cities had communist municipalities. Marseille, the great seaport in the south, was characteristic of this. Now at this time, out of the struggles of the right wing in France came the National Front. Le Pen, Jean-Marie Le Pen, its founder, was a man who was often accused of sympathy during the war with the Vichy regime, though that's never been substantially proved, though his speeches and his actions in the post-war years would suggest he pretty much approved of the fascist regime. He managed to get 10 or 12 or 15 percent of the vote, especially on an anti-immigrant platform, which has become pretty central in Europe these days, France having a large Muslim population, the biggest in Europe, because of the 
French colonial rule in North Africa, which brought many Muslim women especially to France who married French soldiers during the long French occupation. And many Muslim children, half Muslim children, came with their parents from Algeria. And so France today, I think, has about four million Muslims, including one who's a cabinet minister in the present government. Later still, the French Socialist Party under Mitterrand emerged as the largest party on the left as the communists declined with the collapse of the Soviet Union. And Mitterrand eventually took power as president for a seven-year term. The French have a curious system. They have an elected president, and de Gaulle created the constitution, what's called the Fifth Republic, more or less to suit him, president whose major task is foreign affairs, and a prime minister and a parliament who run the affairs domestically. It doesn't work too badly. Very often the same party wins the parliament and the prime ministership as wins the presidency, but not always. And sometimes that leads to conflict. And the president can, as de Gaulle did on occasions, dissolve the parliament and hold fresh elections if things aren't working out properly to, to his point of view. At the moment, the Socialist Party, which won power half a dozen years ago, the Socialist Party has the presidency and also controls the houses of the French Parliament. French Parliament is a bit like ours. It's the lower house, the Chamber of Deputies that counts. So at the moment, and for some years, France has had a pretty ineffective and fairly unpopular Socialist government, partly because of its tax policies, but also because Hollande, the, pri the president, has not been very good at satisfying anybody. The left of the Socialist Party hasn't been happy with him, nor have the right-wing parties. And he goes to the polls. He's not standing again, which shows how unpopular he is. He goes to the polls, or the Socialists go to the polls, early this year, I think it's in April or May, with the prospect of a catastrophic defeat facing them. Now, that means the Conservative parties, the old, what we call the Gaullist parties, uh, which de Gaulle founded after the war, would probably win power. And the last time they did that was half a dozen years ago when we had Sarkozy as president of France. Again, the French have another system where parties pick their presidential candidates by a primary vote in the American style. And interestingly, the socialists this weekend have chosen a man called Hamon, Benoit Hamon, a young former minister in the socialist government who's come up with all sorts of interesting new policies. For instance, he says we should tax companies that use robots that replace people with robots and create unemployment. He suggested the French should do what the Finns have done, set up a kind of universal basic wage for everyone. And if you don't want to be in the workforce or you can't get a job and you can live on that amount of money, well, so be it. Everyone, rich or poor, men and women, aged or whatever, all would get this pension from the age of 18. Quite a remarkable idea. Hamon is the Socialists' uh, candidate and may do very well, despite the feeling that the Socialists will de be defeated. And the Conservatives have 
trouble picking a candidate and one that seems likely to be picked is one who's talked about huge cuts in the public service which is not a very popular thing in France, which has a very large public service and social welfare structure, pretty much like we do. In the middle of all this is Marie Le Pen. Now, as I said, she's an attractive candidate. She looks okay. She speaks well. And she will get a much higher vote than her deplorable old father used to get. She is running on the usual candidate stuff, Uh, She's opposed to immigrants, especially Islamic immigrants, but she's opposed to the European community, and she's not really opposed to the social welfare structure, which is pretty big in France. So she may pick up working-class votes as well as middle-class votes. That obviously prompted her visit to Trump. It would be a catastrophe for Europe if she were to win and a catastrophe for France, given her background. Uh, She is by far the most right-wing of all these new right-wing parties, except perhaps the Dutch one, that have appeared in recent years in Europe. And she does hark back, as I've said in my opening remarks, to the days of Vichy in France. And, And that part of French history is by no means dead. We'll see in the, ne- the next few months how well she's doing. None of the polls are predicting, though, that she will get much more than 20 or 25%. And what happens in France if the first round of presidential voting doesn't produce a majority candidate, and, a, and that's 50%, there's a second round three weeks later only the two leading candidates. Now, it's possible that Le Pen will be one of them, and quite likely that the Conservative candidate will be the other. This has happened once before, and what happened was the Socialists urged their voters not to vote for Le Pen, but to go along and vote for Conservative candidates, which in the main they did. And Chirac... Uh, was the man who profited from that and became president. It would be like an election here in which Labor urged its supporters to go and vote for the Liberals rather than vote for Pauline Hanson. I know that's not a good indication, but in French terms, it's that sort of event. Uh, The French elections this year are going to test a number of things. She talks as if she's going to win given the right-wing surge in Britain over Brexit and Trump, of course. But I suspect we will see an election in which probably the socialist vote will be third and will determine whether or not she fails to win the presidency. As you said, Brian McKinley, time would tell, and we shall see. That's Brian McKinley, historian and author. And it's um, coming up to five o'clock. We'll be hearing about Palestine soon and the doomsday clock a little bit later. An expensive fundraiser is being held in Melbourne to pay for the far right's continued campaigns in Australia against halal, Muslims and the left, with guest speakers Corey Bernardi and George Christensen. We're calling on everyone to come and protest on February 10th to make their fundraiser a failure. Let the racist rich know they'll always lose in Melbourne. 
check out the Facebook event page at Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. That's facebook.com slash campaign ARF or text 0422-726-843 for details. Solidarity trumps hatred. Campaign Against Racism and Fascism is a 3CR supporter. On the line now is Kim Bullimore, activist for Palestine, and begin, Kim, talking about reports by an independent Israeli-Canadian journalist and filmmaker, David Sheen, of a conference last week at an Israeli university titled Professors for a Stronger Israel. You contend that his reports of proceedings of the conference illustrate why we should be supporting the Palestinian BDS campaign and the academic boycott of Israel. Can you explain why? David Sheen, for people who don't know, uh, is um, has been reporting quite extensively for the last few years uh, on Israeli society and particularly looking at extremism within Israeli society and racism. And his recent rep- series of tweets that he's done on Twitter uh, are looking at the Professors of Strong Israel conference, which just happened uh, recently. And, I mean, what's interesting about that conference is not so much what they've said, because this is stuff we already know, but it's that it's been reported in English, because often a lot of these conferences don't get reported in English media. And so you know, it takes somebody like David Sheen, who's a he's an independent journalist, to you know get this information out. Uh, and a lot of the stuff that they they're saying is not stuff that we haven't heard before. It's you know talking about the democratic threat of Palestinians, uh, which is an extremely racist uh, thing. It talks about you know obviously that really there isn't an occupation going on in the occupied Palestinian territories, and you know supporting a numerous number of the apartheid policies and military repression of Palestinians. So, I mean, I think what this goes to show is, you know, there's the the Palestinian BDS campaign, and part of that is the academic boycott. You know, and often we hear people saying, oh, but you, you know, you shouldn't be boycotting academic institutions and things like that. Well, you know, what I think this conference illustrates is is the uh, intertwining of Israeli academia with the Israeli state. You know, just about every uh, Israeli university major academic institution has very, very close ties, not only with the Israeli state, but with the Israeli military. Often they're doing research for Israeli military on weapons and various other things, uh, you know, whether it be drones or new chemical warfare and various things like that. So there's a very close relationship there that can't be separated. So I think what this goes to illustrate is that this is that relationship that's not just amongst this particular group of academics who are involved in a political organisation called Professors for a Strong Israel, but it links to the broader involvement of Israeli academia in the repression and uh, support of uh, Israeli policies that keep seeing human rights abuses against Palestinians. And how many of these Israeli academics have been knocked back to come to Australia to get involved with universities here? 
look, I wouldn't be able to give you a figure on that at all. I mean, and we have to remember, when we're talking about the academic boycott, we're not talking about individual academics. What we're talking about is institutionalised relationships. So usually if there is, you know, there was a controversy a number of years back with Skate Lynch when he has uh, cited the, the BDS campaign saying that he wouldn't support a particular academic coming to Australia, his application coming to Australia because the, that particular academic was coming on a specific program that was being sponsored by one of the universities in Israel, which had ties with the Israeli military and government and various things like that. So it, it's not about individual academics, but it is about institutional ties and how that relates to the academic world. Looking at the prospects for Palestine with Trump in the White House, but before we do, do that, what did Obama do for Palestine? Probably not a lot. <laughs> That's the easiest question. I mean, well, it'll be interesting, you know, because now we have this uh, this brave new world under Donald Trump. Uh, I'm sure it'll probably possibly make Obama look so much better. But, you know, when you actually look at the record of Obama, it's not great. Basically, you know, just before he uh, finished up in office in September of last year, Obama basically handed over the largest military aid deal to Israel in history. That was um, something like $3.8 billion annually over the next 10 years. So basically $38 billion in military aid has gone to uh, Israel under Obama's watch. He's also, you know, earlier times I've given $1.9 billion in arms and sales there. So uh, he's basically, you know, there's been, and I think we'll talk about it later, there's been big controversy about just before he left office that, that the US didn't veto the recent vote on a resolution on settlements and as if, you know, he was the worst person ever to do that and, and that's not hasn't been part of American policy or anything like that. Well, the reality is more than any other president in history of since Israel has existed, Obama actually shielded Israel from resolutions more than any other American president, including Bush and including Reagan. You know, so this idea that somehow that Obama was uh, implacably at odds with Israel is a complete fallacy. And generally, the main I suppose thing was that they tried to keep the settlement freeze happening and of course that when it has gone against what Netanyahu has wanted to do and then and they're hoping Netanyahu and the the hard right of the Israeli government and Israeli society are hoping that now under Trump that they're going to be able to they have carte blanche to go out and build as many settlements as they like, particularly in East Jerusalem. They particularly want to build as many as they can in East Jerusalem. Uh, I was reading this morning something up to, I think it was 11,000 housing units. Is, uh, hasn't been approved, but that is what the mayor of Jerusalem is hoping will happen, that they can do that at some stage in the new future under Trump. But, you know, also just in the last uh, few weeks and months particularly uh, there has been announcements of, of extensions of settlements and more housing the other thing that they're hoping to do is to annex settlements like Mal Agamemnon which is a settlement which is on the 
very outskirts of Jerusalem. It's not actually considered to be part of Jerusalem because it's actually part of the occupied West Bank. And they want to annex this particularly into Jerusalem to make municipal Jerusalem even bigger. That way it actually plays two roles, that it basically makes demographically Jerusalem becomes more dominated and by Zionist settlements and population. And also it actually, Maladamim, basically will ensure that there can be no contiguous Palestinian state between East Jerusalem and the occupied West Bank. So they've been wanting to particularly, you know, annex this one for a long time. And this is a huge settlement. I've, I've been to this settlement and it's actually quite big. These are the sort of things that they're hoping that will happen under Trump's watch. You know, and obviously the other thing um, under Trump is that they're wanting to do is they're hoping that they'll be able to officially move the American embassy to Jerusalem. Actually, uh, the mechanics to do that has been in place in the US since actually 1995. There was actually an act that was uh, passed back then uh, that actually sanctioned the moving of the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem in 1995. But Every year since then, American presidents have passed a waiver that stops that happening. Basically, there was a clause within the act that was passed that said that you know the presidents could stop it happening for security reasons. So now there's some speculation now whether Trump will not sign that waiver and it will actually allow it to move. But we have to remember also that under Bush and uh, Clinton, they both actually also said that they would move the embassy and they didn't. Trump, it could that could be the case as well with Trump, but, you know, Trump is such a wild card. You know, it could very well happen. At the moment, he's, he's been asked about it, but he's kind of been bobbing back and saying, oh, it's too early to talk about it yet and things like that. I mean, it'll be interesting, you know, hopefully it won't happen, but we'll have to keep an eye on it. I mean, the, the thing is, it's not just about a symbolic thing. It's important on one level symbolically that because, you know, it actually violates the idea that there's still no, you know, solution to the uh, Israel-Palestine conflict and that, you know, under international law, Jerusalem is recognised as occupied territory. So, you know, it would violate that. I mean, if it goes ahead, you know, if you read some of the reports that talk about the move, that, it, that, is, that this actually could go a long way to reinstitute, uh, not reinstituting, but re uh, instigating possibly violence because of, you know, some of the, the key times when you've seen flare-ups uh, is when uh, the Israeli state has tried to annex Al-Aqsa uh, and other parts of the occupied East Jerusalem. And you will see, obviously, then Palestinians will come out and do protests and, and you know, and the, they're peaceful protests usually. They just come out to the streets to protest. But then those protests then, of course, are attacked by the Israeli military and the Israeli police and things like that. The, inter the second intifada was sparked by events around uh, Al-Aqsa and the attempts of Israel to, you know, look uh, under Ariel Sharon to make moves to try and, you know, annex it and things like that. So this could, you know, be, cause a real flashpoint if they actually do move it. So hopefully, I don't know, we'll have to see what happens. Is there also alarm bells ringing about the people that he's been appointing over the last couple of weeks to positions of power and their support for the, the State of Israel? 
Well, that's right. I mean, what's interesting about this is there's this, uh, obviously there's a hard right support within Trump's coterie around him and obviously the hard right in Israel loved Trump as well. I mean I was just reading this morning that Netanyahu is meeting with Trump on the 15th of February to discuss issues and of course you know it, uh, Netanyahu tweeted the other day his support for Trump building a wall uh, you know between Mexico and the US and he tweeted his support for Trump's Muslim ban. You know and of course this has come as no ba- uh, surprise on one level because, uh, you know, ben, I think it was Ben White had an article in the, um, in the Independent in the last day or so saying, look, Israel's had these same sort of measures in place for decades. So, you know, of course Israel and Netanyahu are going to support these measures by Trump. They're very similar. But what is interesting is about this is it's, it's causing a lot of dissonance within the Zionist community, particularly uh, in the lead-up before Trump became president and, you know, when he was announcing people like Steve Bannon as his chief advisor. Bannon has now apparently going to be on the National Security Committee or whatever it's called. You know, there was a lot of consternation about that amongst some of the Zionist organisations. Some of them were quite happy to embrace him, while others were saying, well, no, this guy's an anti-Semite. You know, what the hell's going on? And so it's actually caused a disruption within the Zionist community in the US and then those who are Israel apologists because the hard right, which are often anti-Semitic and and anti-Jewish, obviously, also have this support for Israel, but they're supporting it on the basis of Israel's treatment of the Palestinians, treatments of the Muslim population, which who are Palestinians, within Israel and various things like this. So there's this really strange relationship that's going on and so how this will play out will be interesting because I think it's going to cause more ructions, it's going to cause more splits within those who support Israel uncritically in the US and so it yeah, it'll be interesting to see where things go with this. There's been changing, you know, particularly amongst young Jewish people in the US have become more critical of Israel, of its human rights abuses and things like that. Uh, and that has been a concern to the older Zionist community and organisations. With Trump now coming into power and him, you know, surrounding himself with a coterie of white supremacists, neo-Nazis and a whole heap of people like this, I think it's going to cause more dissonance and split. Well, just getting back to the the vote in the UN in December, condemning the settlements, where does that lead then from what you've been saying about new settlements? Does it mean that the UN votes a paper tiger? Yeah, it is. The vote was important symbolically. I mean, it was actually the first vote uh, on settlements in 35 years. So it's important in that respect. But it has no, the UN has no coercive power to force Israel to stop settlement building or anything like that. But, you know, I mean, of course, Netanyahu and the Israeli government threw a, a tantrum about it. And it was actually their reaction to it was 
absolutely crazy, you know, and it was it was like a child who'd had his lollipop taken away from it. It was ridiculous. But that was to play to their own domestic audience and to play to their supporters around the world. It really, they don't didn't really care what anybody else thought. But basic thing, uh, I think, about, on one hand, symbolically, I think it's important that it reaffirmed that Israel settlements are illegal. In the period that Obama was in office, there was more than 100,000 illegal Israeli settlers had moved into the occupied Palestinian territories under Obama's watch. So even though they were having a settlement freeze, there was still 100,000, a rise of 100,000. Israel wants to keep going as much as they can. And so what this, even though there's no mechanism to stop them doing it, it provides, you know, international pressure to say, to remind people that actually this is illegal. So I think it's good in that respect, although it's frustrating that there is no way that they can stop them building the settlements. On the other level, what was interesting about this particular motion that was moved forward was generally uh, a lot of the motions, as far as I'm aware, the motions that have been passed, the resolutions that have been passed before, haven't made a point of saying that, you know, people should make sure that they, they know the distinction between the Israeli state and the occupied territories. I mean, that was an inherent in the motions, but they explicitly make a point of saying it in this particular motion, which I think is really interesting because what that does is, you know, Israel has very much over the last, you know, couple of decades tried to blur that line. They've tried to, you know, just say, well, no, the settlements are part of Israel. It doesn't matter that they're they're in occupied territories. They're just part of the Israeli state. And this is why you have Israel, Netanyahu and everybody else, you know, throwing tantrums when, for example, the EU says, no, okay, we're going to label produce from settlements as no longer being from Israel, that they're actually from settlements. Uh, Because by previously by labelling it from settlement, it erases the, the you know that there's actually a settlement, there's actually a, an occupation going on. So what I think that this specific part of saying that does is actually goes some way to you know actually giving legal legitimisation to the BDS campaign. I mean I, the BDS campaign is legitimate anyway and it's legal anyway because it complies with international law but I think this actually further legitimise, you know, gives them a bit more legitimisation which I think is important particularly given there's been all of these attacks on the BDS campaign in the US as well as in um, Europe but on the other hand as you said it's a paper tiger on, on, on many levels. And while expensive settlements are built on occupied Palestinian land the Palestinian homes are demolished after police pulled out of an unrecognised Bedouin village of Umm al-Hiran, a boy sitting in the rubble was asked, where will you sleep? His reply, we won't sleep. Mm. I'm happy I'm pronouncing it right. Um, Umm al-Hiran shows, yes, you know, the, that apartheid is not just in the West Bank. Apartheid exists inside the Israeli state itself. So we've got the al-Hiran is is it's one of the around 45 what's called unrecognised villages in the Negev, uh, which is uh, in the, the south of the Israeli state. Basically, these villages are homes uh, and towns. Well, actually, they're not just villages. They're actually towns, many of them. Uh, they're home to up to 100,000 Palestinian Bedouin. These Bedouins have been there since before the existence of Israel. Prior to the Israeli uh, 
state being formed in 1948, there was around 100 Bedouin tribes on that. Uh, but then after the 1948 war, there was only about 19 or 20 of them who were left inside the Israeli state. And they were basically forced off their land into uh, concentration areas where they were forced to live. Uh, and under this period, all Palestinians, including Palestinian Bedouins from Israel from, uh, from 1949 to about 1946, lived under military law. There was military law passed that determined their freedom of movement, their political affiliations, a whole heap of things inside of Israel. This is not in, I'm not talking about in the West Bank or anywhere. This is inside Israel. Uh, and so Palestinians and Palestinian Bedouins, uh, Palestinian Arabs and Palestinian Bedouins were, um, you know, subject to these laws while Jewish citizens of Israel weren't. What's happened in the last 10 or 20 years, many of the Bedouins who were pushed into these areas have gone back to their traditional areas and tried to re-establish villages and things like that. Uh, many of the villages had originally been there, but only few people had remained. So since 1965, basically Israel has said, we don't recognise this. That means these towns... They don't get uh, schools. They don't get um, not connected to the electronic, uh, uh, sorry, electricity grid. They don't have water. Uh, you know, uh, connected to uh, connected to the water um, uh, system. They don't get funding for schools. Uh, they don't get funding for uh, hospitals, medic medical centres, any of this sort of stuff. So basically, they just have to fare for themselves. And since uh, and Israel has been trying to ethnically cleanse this area for decades. Uh, in, in 19, in, in, sorry, in 2013 in particular, there was a thing known as the Prower Plan, which was, the plan was to put in place basically ethnic cleansing of up to 130 uh, Palestinian Bedouin from the Negev. What's happening in Al-Hamram is just an extension of that. Uh, and so there's this attempt to uh, erase uh, and ethnically cleanse these Bedouin townships, which have been there, you know, since before 1948 and from people who've been there before 1948 uh, to replace them with Jewish-only towns. So this is apartheid in practice inside the Israeli state. And thanks to Kim Bullimore, activist for Palestine, and um, we'll be looking forward maybe to next month to Mr Netanyahu getting a, a hot reception if he comes to Australia. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Atomic scientists have reset the symbolic doomsday clock to its closest time to midnight in 64 years, from 3 minutes to midnight to 2 minutes 30 seconds to midnight. To explain how that clock came into being, what has occurred over the past 70 years since the graphic was designed and what needs to be done to turn the clock back. I'm speaking with the co-president of the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, 
and Associate Professor of the Nossal Institute for Global Health at the University of Melbourne, Tilman Ruff. Tilman, take us back to 1947 when the graphic appeared on the first cover of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists as it transferred from a six-page black-and-white newsletter to a fully-fledged magazine. Who were these atomic scientists? Well, they were a really interesting group. It was a substantial number of the senior scientists who were involved in the Manhattan Project for developing the nuclear bomb. So this was a very elite, incredibly smart group of the best scientists that were pulled from all over the world. A lot of Germans, other Europeans and Americans, Australians, all over the place on this massive, what was to then the biggest industrial undertaking that had ever been undertaken to try and develop a nuclear weapon. And many of them were motivated by particularly those that fled Europe and disproportionate number of Germans and and Poles among them who were deeply fearful that Nazi Germany would get the bomb first and were aware of German efforts in that direction. And so they had no hesitation after experiencing the genocides and devastation in Europe that if Hitler had a nuclear weapon, he would use it. And so they thought it was a matter of scientific responsibility and an ethical thing to do to help the United States develop it first. Little did they know at that stage about the plans for the use and the the fact that they would be used so quickly after they were developed. And one of the interesting things is that when it became clear during the program that Germany was in fact nowhere near, nowhere close, remotely, to developing a nuclear weapon, was many, many years off. Only one of the scientists actually left the project ethically. He could no longer justify and that was Joseph Hortblatt, the Nobel Prize-winning leader of the Pugwash movement, an extraordinary man. But... Once you're in that sort of scientific enterprise and it's exciting and you're being rewarded and recognised, you know, the temptation is to continue. So many of these had second thoughts a bit later after the bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and were appalled by the the devastation visited on those cities from two relatively small nuclear weapons and then felt obliged to do what they could to speak with evidence, to speak from scientific evidence to the need to get rid of and control nuclear weapons and prevent their use ever again. So the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists was was part of that effort. The Manhattan Project started in Chicago and that's where the Bulletin was founded. Many of the senior scientists, Robert Oppenheimer, who led the Manhattan Project, Albert Einstein, were on the original board of sponsors. It was about as luminary a group of physicists as you could find anywhere. And in their own way, they wanted to speak truth to power, scientific truth to power, and speak out about the need to to eliminate nuclear weapons. So that's how it all started in 1945. And how did they come up with the idea of a clock? The clock was the idea, I think, of Martha Langford, the the wife of one of the the Bulletin founders, who was a physicist, had, had been one of the scientists. She was an artist. And they wanted something that would communicate more visually clearly, simply to the public that would convey the widespread sense that of urgency, of danger, and could provide some way of monitoring trends, positive or otherwise, in terms of how we were going about facing this existential threat of nuclear weapons till we managed to get rid of them. They came up with this idea of the clock, and I, my understanding is, although I obviously wasn't there at the time, 
that the seven minutes that they started at was initially suggested by her simply because as an artist visually she liked the look of it. She thought it looked really good. And of course the more important thing than the actual position is how it moves, whether it's going backwards or whether it's being moved forward. So it become has become really the most iconic, I guess widely recognised probably longest standing and certainly I think the most authoritative of the sort of longer term global assessments about our level of danger. What acknowledgement did it get back in 1947? A reasonable amount I understand. I mean it's always been pretty influential especially in the United States but it mainly gets attention every year when they adjust the time and they do this in a very sort of considered deliberate process the there's a science and security board which includes 15 eminent scientists of diverse expertise, nearly all of them American though, about a third of them women now, and they deliberate for a couple of days to decide on the basis of all the available evidence where should the hands be set. So those announcements are made late January each year. This year in Australia it just happened to be on Australia Day but that was coincidence. So that's when it gets the most attention. So, of course, there's a whole flurry of of media attention. The Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists is is a very well-known, a very credible... It still remains, I think, one of the best, if not the best, sources of information about the the really big-picture existential threats that we face, nuclear weapons and climate change. Well, it doesn't change every year, does it? But it's changed a fair number of years. Some of the time has gone closer to midnight and sometimes it's gone backwards. Can you talk about some of the issues that have caused it to either go up or down? It doesn't reflect the sort of day-to-day cut and thrust of politics and you know the news cycle. or It's not done on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. It's really looking at the longer-term trends over an annual basis. It started at seven minutes to midnight in 1947, it progressively moved forwards as the Cold War got underway and the United States started ramping up its nuclear arsenal. Uh, the Soviet Union started to follow. And then it reached the point closest to midnight, at two minutes to midnight in 1953, when both the Soviet Union and the United States, within six months of each other, tested hydrogen bombs, thermonuclear weapons. So essentially nuclear weapons of unlimited size, potentially. And that's when they moved the hands forward to two minutes to midnight. And they stayed there for seven years during the worst of the Cold War in the 50s while the, the US built 30,000 nuclear weapons by the early 1960s. You know, it didn't, took the Soviet Union until the 80s to catch up with just the simple numbers. It's never been closer to midnight than then. So this now two and a half minutes that they've set it this year is the closest time other than in 1953. It hasn't been that anywhere near as close for, for, for 64 years. And the furthest back it's been, have been set, was 17 minutes to midnight. When the Soviet Union broke up, there were unilateral reductions in nuclear weapons, a whole reciprocating series of initiatives between the elder Bush president and, and Mikhail Gorbachev as president of the Soviet Union to ratchet back the nuclear arsenals, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty that eliminated short and medium-range nuclear-armed missiles from Europe and the strategic arms reduction talks that reduced long-range missile nuclear forces on both sides. So that was when, the um, in the early 80s, when the clock moved back to 17 minutes to midnight. And since then, unfortunately, it's gradually moved forward. 
Till about the uh, mid-90s, it was really just focused on the nuclear threat. And in more recent years, it's also addressed other big, longer-term threats to the human future, including climate change most prominently, but also they monitor trends in cyber technology, in biotechnology and, and other potentially emerging threats. But it's still nuclear weapons and climate disruption that are the two principal drivers. So is the nuclear weapon aspect of it just concentrated on Soviet Union and now Russia and the United States? What about the other nuclear powers? They've looked at the nuclear situation overall and, for example, this year they say that the reasons why they've moved it forward, particularly this year, more than in any other year, relate to the actions of particular individuals, uh, Vladimir Putin and, and Donald Trump, not surprisingly, who really are in extraordinarily influential positions. And, you know, to change the the global context and to, you know, they between them still have 93% of the world's nuclear weapons. But the statement this year does draw attention also to the, the concerning situation in North Korea, the escalating risks of war between India and Pakistan, the importance of the agreement to limit Iran's nuclear program that's been achieved in a position of jeopardy now with the new US administration. Um, but they certainly look at a very broad remit. I would say, however, that because they are based in the United States and because their board is very largely Americans, they do have, a, in my view, a slightly disproportionate emphasis on things American. They've never invited scientists from other countries to take part? Yes, they have. At the moment, the, the, uh, the board has, I think, three outside uh, the United States. And just to complete the picture, apart from this 15-person board, the other group that's involved more, to, I think, to sort of review and cast an eye rather than be involved in, in the very detailed discussions. But they have a board of sponsors, which also includes another another 15-odd people. Sorry, it's, it's more than 15 because it includes 15 Nobel laureates. So that's a very august, distinguished group of brain power that's uh, pretty hard to ignore. So it's the reason, or one of the main reasons it's gone up this time. Is it climate change or is it Trump? They or the threats to climate change? They cite change? a number of intertwined threats, but, but in, in, in some it would be that the risks of nuclear war are growing, the rhetoric is ramping up. All of the architecture of the Cold War is still in place. The potential flashpoints are increasing in Crimea, Ukraine, Middle East, uh, North Korea, South China Sea, India, Pakistan. They're worried about the lack of respect for evidence. They're particularly concerned about, about Donald Trump's denying of, of climate science, essentially, and making cabinet nominees that consistently pretty much deny the the absolutely clear reality and they draw attention to the fact that you know science is not the evidence is not uh, republican or democrat or any other political persuasion and and the facts have a stubborn persistence they can't be ignored but also on the nuclear front so so they're essentially saying that the risks of nuclear war are increasing there's no progress happening on disarmament in terms of weapons reductions not even talking about the next round of potential weapons reductions climate change potential promise of the Paris Agreement and it looks as if emissions might have just plateaued in 2016 but they say that's not enough to be clear about the trend and that action is still woefully lagging behind what needs to be done 
And then they raise specific concern about especially Trump and the fact that one of the reasons they state for moving the hand by half a minute for the first time rather than one full minute is simply that the Trump presidency is so new that he hasn't had a chance to do all of that much, all that much yet. So they might have been a bit premature or not either way. I don't think so. I think the evidence they cite is really pretty compelling that, you know, while Trump has said some things that suggest he gets that nuclear weapons are a serious issue, for example, in one of the presidential debates, candidate debates with uh, Hillary Clinton, he he cited and repeated that I think nuclear weapons are the biggest global threat, not climate change. And, and he's also said uh, on one occasion sort of in a sense, trying to balance a very aggressive statement about the need to ramp up America's nuclear arsenal with the statement that, well, until the world comes to its senses and and gets rid of them. But on the other hand, he hasn't ruled out using nuclear weapons against ISIS. He hasn't ruled out using nuclear weapons in Europe. He's widely cited as, as having repeatedly asked, you know, how come we have these weapons if we can't use them? He displays a completely outdated, not evidence-based view that somehow you can use nuclear weapons and prevail, that there's anything worth having after after nuclear war. He, th- he seems to think that they're just a bigger stick, but like every other stick. And his rhetoric is extremely unstable and inconsistent. So, you know, scores of current and senior former people in his own party have said this man doesn't have the knowledge or judgment or temperament or capacity to you know, to have his fingers on the button. I mean, the wider issue, of course, is that no, there should be no fingers on buttons. There's no right hands for the wrong weapons, as Ban Ki-moon said. But I think the particular dangers posed by such a narcissistic man who clearly flip-flops, doesn't respect evidence, and clearly doesn't comprehend the magnitude of the implications of the issues he's dealing with, has been consistent enough on both nuclear weapons and climate change to to warrant the concern. You're listening to Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. This is Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett, and I'm speaking with Tillman Ruff, who's the co-president of the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War and Associate Professor at the Nossel Institute for Global Health at the University of Melbourne. Has he reacted at all to these clock being put forward? Not to my knowledge. But it is quite extraordinary that this august group you know, would single out one person as having such a major influence on their decision and, and they draw attention to the fact that that's the first time they've been so influenced by the actions of one person. Over the years, have they been encouraged by the decrease in the number of nuclear weapons and bombs that there are in the world or... Is it just the fact that even if you only had one or two, you've still got the threat? The numbers are important, but not at the scale that we're we're at. They've certainly moved the clock backwards, i.e. away from midnight, significantly at at past occasions when there have been nuclear disarmament successes. I mentioned the end of the Cold War and the reductions and agreements that, that were associated with that period. But the problem is that from our peak of you know 68,000 nuclear weapons roughly in 1986 to now 15,350, it's still too many. And firstly, there was so much redundant destructive capacity, if you like. So you know you're bouncing the rubble around a dozen times over. I mean, you just there's just no conceivable use for that level of destructive capacity. 
you can't find enough targets for 68,000 nuclear weapons globally, even if you target important militarily or politically important points with multiple weapons, you can't find enough targets. The level of destruction potentially caused was simply so great that reducing to that level, even though it's 80% reduction, that sounds like a lot, unfortunately it doesn't materially reduce our danger very much. And the other thing is that we now know much more about the consequences of even relatively small-scale regional use of nuclear weapons, so that we now know, for example, that even 100 Hiroshima-sized weapons targeted on cities that would cause them to burn, inject millions of tonnes of soot and smoke into the upper atmosphere that would cool, darken and dry the surface of the earth and decimate agriculture and cause famine on a scale that we've never seen before, potentially billions of people, significant proportion of, of humanity. It's not that new, it's a decade old, but we simply didn't know that before. The idea, you know, the whole concept of nuclear deterrence based on mutually assured destruction that with rational leaders, a rational person would never initiate a nuclear attack because it would invite retaliation that would be would destroy them that's completely outmoded we're, we're, we're no longer in that area we're in the era now of essentially self-assured destruction where even the use of a modest fraction a tiny fraction in fact of the of the russian uh, or the american arsenal or in fact the arsenals of the smaller nuclear powers china india pakistan israel france britain everyone essentially with nuclear weapons except for north korea presuming they only have about a handful, even those relatively small numbers, hundreds of nuclear weapons, could cause a, a global catastrophe that would spare no, no part of the globe. So until we get the levels down to you know, really tens of weapons, that sort of global existential threat isn't off the table. Can you so, talk a bit more about those, those other countries, particularly... India and Pakistan, who are, are neighbours, they've probably got their, their weapons on either side of the, the border. And then you've got NATO, I dare say, that they've got nuclear weapons facing Russia. Absolutely. And, and those are two of the flashpoints that they particularly mention. India and Pakistan concerns very many people around the world. India and Pakistan have been to war three times since independence for both of them in the late 40s. They've amassed half a million troops on their border on a couple of other occasions. Uh, there have been terrorist attacks in India at least twice on the parliament in Delhi and in Mumbai that implicated Pakistani intelligence and security forces where Indian significant military retaliation was very seriously contemplated. There is shooting across the disputed border in Kashmir almost every day with regular occurrence of incidents that kill a few or tens of dozens of people, military and and civilian, unfortunately, too. And it's the place where the numbers of nuclear weapons are actually growing faster than anywhere else in the world. And the nuclear policies are escalating the level of risk. India has this sort of cold start strategy that essentially if, if it comes to a shooting war, uh, they will employ nuclear forces very quickly. Pakistan's conventional military forces are very much inferior to Indians, India's and the distances are much shorter. You know, Islamabad is you know, less than 100 kilometres from the border. So if there's attack, their policy is very early employment of nuclear weapons on their territory. And in fact, they've recently deployed short-range missiles that only have a range of 60 kilometres. I mean, they're going to be used in Pakistan. They're both developing cruise missiles, short and longer and medium-range missiles, 
and Pakistan is actually increasing its arsenal faster than any other country on earth. So India and Pakistan is, is, a, is a very real concern. Do they express any concern about Israel and on the border of Syria? They don't say a lot specifically about about that context, except that it's another site of instability and conflict and uh, tension between Russia and the United States. But of course the same applies to to Israel's nuclear arsenal if it were used in the Middle East. The the climate effects I described are not specific to one place. It's it's simply a matter of, of nuclear weapons are an incredibly efficient means of igniting simultaneous fires widely over a city or an industrial centre that then produce an awful lot of smoke. It doesn't matter whose nuclear weapons they are or in which part of the world. The fuel loading in cities varies around the world a bit. It's highest in the largest and densest cities in China, but it's it's the same problem. And Israel's nuclear arsenal is thought to consist of around 80 or 90 weapons. That's more than enough to uh, to trigger significant global climatic effects. How quickly can it happen? And is it the case with all of those countries that there's one person who's got the finger on the button, as, as they say? The level of information about the precise detail of exactly what the chain of command is and the checks and balances is not always widely available, especially in places like North Korea or or even in India and Pakistan. It's clear that in the United States, presidential authority alone, there's no international law or bodies that govern how countries, how and when they might employ their nuclear weapons. Um, you would generally expect that the head of state would be involved. But for many of these situations where you've got tactical weapons, short-range weapons, weapons that, for example, the short-range Pakistani missiles, um, the Indian equivalents, you presume that the ships in the South China Sea that, that might be you know, coming into conflict over Chinese island building and you know, US and Japan flexing their muscles and, and trying to make them feel uncomfortable. Certainly in those situations, the possibility of launching nuclear weapons, especially at a time of war, is likely to be devolved to lower levels of military command. It might be at a sort of field commander level where that authority might be delegated to and thus increasing the uncertainty, the instability and the whole number of ways in which nuclear weapons might be used by, by design or, or by accident or misjudgment. But... Yes, it's it's um, having short-range weapons designed for sort of local use is only possible if there is delegated command. And what's known about near misses and accidents over the years? Plenty. And I should say during the Cuban Missile Crisis too, it was clear that the Soviet submarine that was that was getting hassled by US Navy vessels with depth charges had delegated authority to launch its nuclear weapon. And... It needed three people's agreement and one of them disagreed. That was the only thing that stood between us and nuclear weapons being used in the Cuban Missile Crisis. So so delegated command certainly applies in other contexts. And yes, we know of multiple instances where uh, there have been accidents and uh, as well as many instances where use of nuclear weapons was seriously considered at a political and military level. And some of the most recent of those have been since the end of the Cold War, and there continue to be uh, to be accidents with with nuclear weapons. We know, for example, that it, some years ago, six cruise missiles, nuclear armed cruise missiles, on a bomber 
the bomber was flying all over the United States, left parked while the crew went and had lunch. You know, it was almost 36 hours that it was gone before somebody realised that nuclear weapons were missing. Those sorts of accidents happen very frequently. There's There's been all sorts of cases of, of commanders being dismissed for, for drunken and inappropriate behaviour or, or, or pathological gambling or lots of cases of cheating on safety exams of how to, how to control nuclear weapons. And that's in countries where that's open that you can find that yes. out. Yes, and, and of course there's likely to be many more instances of those in places where we don't, we don't know about. I think the most important accident in terms of its current implications was a 1995 accident which so well past the end of the Cold War, not at a time of particular tension, less significantly less international tension, especially between Russia and the US than now. And what happened was that a weather observation and, and, and space observation was launched from Norway, an American satellite. The Russian, because of the lack of funding and various issues, their early warning satellite system has become significantly degraded. So their warning capacity is eroded, which makes the whole thing more unstable and dangerous and prone to, to misjudgment and, and short consideration times. The launch pattern, the plume of this climbing Black Bryant rocket it was, with an with a observation satellite, a completely innocent thing, looked like the launch pattern, the plume of a Trident missile. The launch of this peaceful rocket had actually been notified to Russian authorities, but it, the fact of the launch wasn't communicated appropriately. It got left on somebody's desk, presumably. So President Yeltsin, for, for the only time that we know, was woken at 2 a.m. This is a man with significant health problems, major substance abuse, including alcohol issues. Who knows what state he was in at 2 a.m. in the morning when he was woken? But he was given four minutes to decide the codes, the sort of nuclear football equivalent of, of the briefcase with the, with the codes by which he could authorise and instigate a nuclear launch was opened for the first time that's publicly recorded before it was realised that this was an error. So this is in times of sort of relative stability and peace after the Cold War with hotlines and everything else and we came pretty close then. So accidents are a real risk and the whole sort of potential for cyber technology with cyber attacks in the nuclear field now happening, uh, I think escalates these risks of, of sort of infiltration and accident and malfunction of technical systems um, quite substantially. And they draw and the bulletin does draw attention to that. It's one of the one of the trends that they express considerable concern about. How serious was the Trident accident just recently? Pretty serious, I think. They're downplaying uh, this, it, aren't they? Yes, this is this was a British. So Trident is essentially an American system that's leased by the by the British. Even though under the Non-Proliferation Treaty countries aren't supposed to help each other acquire nuclear weapons, this is clearly a collusive relationship that by any straightforward reading doesn't comply with the NPT obligation not to assist other countries to develop or acquire nuclear weapons. That aside, and, and Trident, the Trident system has been around for a long time. This is not a new system. This should be very robust and its um, characteristics very well known. So this was a test that, that where the rocket was fired from the United States in the direction of West Africa, but then the rocket actually turned around and headed back across the United States. Um, so this is an intercontinental nuclear-capable, hopefully not nuclear-armed at the time, 
I think we can reasonably safely presume that. But, you know, some complete, totally out of left field kind of accident in what should be a well-established system that both the British and the Americans rely on. And I think from a political point of view, this has created such a, a fuss as it should, firstly because it was covered up, and secondly because Theresa May, British Prime Minister, knew about this at the time when she justified the British Trident renewal to Parliament as sort of her her big kind of macho, I have to say. Um, you know, one of the first things she did as Prime Minister to sort of assert her authority was was call a vote to commit to the renewal of the Trident nuclear submarine force in the UK. She didn't reveal to Parliament, even in any confidential capacity, uh, the fact that this accident had happened. So, yes, this is not a problem of any particular system. This is a ubiquitous problem that uh, people and complex technologies, things go wrong, inevitably. Let's look to the future, Tillman. What can and what should be done to bring the clock back? It's kind of hidden in the statement of the the assessment for this year, but I have to say it's it's my... I'm not very happy about it. I think they made an error of judgment, actually, on, on this. I think, on the whole, this is an extraordinarily authoritative group that, you know, nobody should dismiss lightly, and, and when they speak, people should listen, and, they've, you know, they're very consistent from year to year. But I think one... Uh, factor where they have, I think, made an error of judgment and, and really is that the one bright spot in the nuclear weapons landscape at present is this extraordinary historic development that the majority of the world's governments, by a majority of over three to one, the day before Christmas Eve at 11 o'clock at night in the General Assembly said, we're going to start in March to negotiate a new treaty to f- prohibit nuclear weapons Nuclear weapons currently are not explicitly illegal. It may surprise people to hear that. Biological weapons, chemical weapons, cluster munitions, landmines, dum-dum bullets, you know, all sorts of inhumane and indiscriminate weapons, and certainly the other kinds of weapons of mass destruction are all banned by international treaty. Only nuclear weapons aren't, the worst of all. And the rest of the world has said, we're fed up with you not delivering on your obligations to the nuclear-armed states. We're fed up with you not delivering on your obligations to disarm 46 years after the the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty that obliges you to do so came into force. We can't get rid of weapons that we don't own, but what we can do is fix that legal gap that leaves ambiguity, that makes it possible for the Future Fund in Australia and Commonwealth Bank, the ANZ and Westpac and Macquarie and others to invest billions of dollars in companies that produce nuclear weapons because they say they're not illegal. They can fix that. So I'm very hopeful that this year we will substantially have, if not completed this year, that's certainly possible, a new treaty that makes it absolutely unequivocal that nuclear weapons are banned in international law and will significantly ramp up the pressure on the nuclear-armed states. And they don't like this at all. If there's one thing that heartens me very much, it's it's the level of concern and opposition that this banned treaty initiative has aroused. They really don't like this. There's a whole lot of reasons that they give publicly that it would be destabilising, that if they're not involved it doesn't make any difference, it's irrelevant, that it would somehow conflict with or undermine the NPT. None of those things hold water. We were leaked a document that the US wrote to all its NATO allies 
in between the UN debate and the UN voting that where the US told all its NATO partners you will vote no to these negotiations and if they start you won't go. What were the reasons for that? Nothing to do with any of the reasons they state publicly as to why a ban treaty would be a bad idea. Everything to do with this would delegitimise nuclear weapons, this would contradict our reliance on nuclear weapons, our nuclear war planning, i.e. this treaty would work as intended and you know, formally recognised in that document. So this would make a difference as the chemical weapons, the landmines, the cluster munitions treaties have made a significant difference even for countries that haven't signed up to them. And this is what the countries that don't have the weapons can do. This is the one thing that they can do and they're finally doing it. So this is a really significant development. Australia hasn't yet said that they will go. To me, it's inconceivable that Australia, which has been a party to and sometimes led on all of the other treaties that ban those terrible weapons that I mentioned, that we wouldn't contribute positively to multilateral disarmament negotiations at the UN. But so far, the Turnbull government hasn't yet said whether Australia will participate or not, and they should. Are there any hopes in your view for climate change? I think that the Paris Agreement is is extremely important. It's really the first time after lots of false starts that there has been a, a significant international agreement. And the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists statement really does reinforce the, the signature, the historic importance of the Paris Agreement, that it's not enough, but that it's an absolutely crucial start. And that unless we can get things moving on that, you know, our, the prospects of addressing climate in the time with the urgency that's needed are really bleak. So Paris is a very important benchmark. It's going to be crucial that, you know, at every level, as individuals, as communities, in local councils, in states, if our national governments are not leading, you know, there's a lot that can be done at at those levels. You know, the Californian economy is, I think, the world's ninth largest, and California is a leader in, in, in climate change, whatever Trump does. And I will also draw attention to the fact that, you know, Trump has clearly his attendance to the US presidency you know, is a pretty substantial gap in global leadership, but there are many other failures of global leadership. And I should also say that he's not the only one who's been saying aggressive things about nuclear weapons. President Kim of Korea, obviously, the India-Pakistan leaders, Theresa May of, of the UK, Vladimir Putin as well, have all talked up in really frightening terms the potential that it might be appropriate when they might use nuclear weapons. But on climate, we saw some very interesting statements of leadership coming out of Chinese uh, President Xi Jinping in in, uh, in Davos and then in Geneva recently. And I think as there is, there are vacuums and gaps and failures in global leadership, hopefully others will step up. And it was very encouraging to hear him call both for the importance of sticking with the Paris Agreement and delivering on it, and you know, such international hard-won agreements shouldn't be at the whim of individual political successes, and also calling at the same time for nuclear weapons abolition. China, in fact, abstained from the vote, was the only one of the nuclear-armed P5 countries that abstained from voting against the ban treaty resolution in the UN. And with this recent statement, I think there's... There's some also some hopeful signs that uh, 
the big countries won't be monolithic and that if there are failures of leadership in one, on one side of the Atlantic that hopefully um, there might be some stronger leadership coming from across the Pacific. And many thanks to Associate Professor Tilman Ruff. Well, that's all for me for today. I'll be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. Stay tuned for Dumbo Law. They'll be here in just a moment. Bye for now.